Hey, I get to introduce our guest speaker today, Robbie Dawkins. Uh, how many of you have been here before when Robbie's here? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, we'll get to clap for him in just a moment. Um, to introduce Robbie, I just want to say he's a good friend. He's a great friend to this church. If, if you're newer around here, then Robbie would be kind of like the favorite family uncle that you never met, okay? And, and you're going to see why in just a moment. But um, when Robbie was here last spring, he had a prophetic word for our church uh, revolving around the idea that this was a clean altar. And um, ever since then, we've wanted him to come back and to follow that message up. And so today is the day. And without further ado, uh, I'm going to pray for Robbie when he comes up here. But let's welcome Robbie, okay? Come on up, Robbie. Yeah, so Father, uh, we're so thankful for Robbie. Thank you for him. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his faithfulness to you. And we just pray blessing on him right now. And I pray blessing on his family and his children and, uh, and everything in his life, Father. We ask you to bless and give him, give him the words you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Wow. Are you guys doing all right? Everybody doing okay? Are you guys awake? How many of you are like faking awake right now? It's like, come on. Be honest here. I know. I, I, I live a good portion of my life kind of right there in that moment. So I understand that. Um, it's, uh, it's always good when you get invited back someplace. And then when you get invited back as many times as I've been invited back here, it's really good. Uh, so that's really encouraging. And uh, so it's good to be with you. Let me, let me share with you just a couple of things that I, I have with me. Um, as you guys know, I always bring resources and things. We only have a few things here because it's a shorter stop um, for us on this. But we did a conference um, this past April uh, in Champaign. That was, uh, it's a series of conferences that we do called More Love, More Power. And this is More Love, More Power 2016. This, uh, how many of you know who Jackie Pullinger is? You know who, a few of you? Jackie Pullinger is, let me tell you something, that, that woman is a hero of the faith. Um, she was a little lady who uh, moved to China and started a ministry to heroin addicts in the Forbidden City. And uh, she wrote a book called Chasing the Dragon. And I mean, it is incredible. But uh, Jackie's always been one of my heroes and just an incredible lady. Uh, Jackie was a part of this conference, uh, teaching at it. Diane Lehman, of course, Putty Putnam, who are a part of the church there, as well as the guys from Northern Ireland. Uh, if Just in case you don't know, there's like a revival that's been happening in Northern Ireland with the vineyard there. Uh, one particular guy by the name of Scott McNamara. You guys should have Scott here. He's coming early part of next year. Scott McNamara, I prayed for, gave him an impartation. He wanted me to go to this, uh, uh, to this um, pub where all these IRA guys hang out uh, to evangelize, paramilitary guys. And I told him, I said, I, said I, I can't because of the time and my schedule. I said, he goes, I know you're not afraid to go. I know you're, and I said, no, I'm not afraid to go. I, said, I just don't have time. And I said, but I said, if you believe I can go and they'll come to Jesus, then you can go and they'll come to Jesus. And he went that afternoon for the first time, led somebody to the Lord, had never done it before, and ended up leading five of them to the Lord. Here's the thing. That was a couple of years ago. To date, Scott has led one-on-one, not in a group like this, but one-on-one over 2,000 people to Jesus. Just him. Just him. And uh, it's just incredible. But anyway, those guys and many of those stories of what's happening are in this set. And we also have the jump drives, which are all the audio and video teachings back there. My book, Do What Jesus Did. We're offering a special for you guys. And part of this is to help me with a couple of trips I'm doing. 
here uh, this next month to the Middle East. Uh, do what Jesus did. We're offering this. If you get, if you buy two of them, you get it at twenty bucks. They're normally fifteen dollars each, but we're uh, dropping that price um, just, and that's to give one away uh, for you to give one to a friend who hasn't heard of it or know about it. And then we also have my other book, Identity Thief, uh, which is here. So anyway, these are there for you resources. There's this is Jeremy Henderson. He's uh, traveling with me. He's an amazing man and incredible guy. I want to talk to you this morning about leaving a legacy. And uh, I want to, uh, what time does the next service start? 11.30. Okay. We, by 11.25, you heard him say it right there. I just heard, that's what I heard from up here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I want to talk to you about leaving a legacy. When Angie and I, my wife and I first got married, um, we've been married now for uh, 24 years. And uh, when we, 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 I, we started off together, we were only making uh, like 400 bucks a week, you know? And that's where you're like, oh, you know? Um, I was youth pastor. She was working at a mortgage company. I mean, she was, you know, at minimum wage scale, basically, even though she had a college degree, I had a college degree, but of course I was in ministry. So I was, we both were basically making, uh, pretty much almost minimum wage. But in that time, um, I had decided that, man, we really, uh, couldn't afford to tithe. And tithing is giving, you know, 10% of your gross income back to God. And that's, you know, saying your Lord, you're Lord of my finances. You're in charge. You know better about my finances than even I do. And that's really sort of what's that saying. But after several months of that, the pastor calls me in his office and he goes, we got a problem. And I said, what's that? He said, you're not tithing. And I was like, well, you don't understand. I mean, you know, you pay me so little, you know, I'm making so little here that I can't afford, you know, kind of my life is the tithe and the additional time that I give. And I was trying to make up, you know, all this over. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, but do you realize what you're doing to your finances? He goes, do you realize how this is hurting you and you're hurting your finances? And I was like, that's just a man that wants 40 extra bucks in the plate, you know? And I was getting mad as he was talking. I was like, how dare he, how, and you know, but of course with him, because I didn't want to lose that job, I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I get home and I told my wife, I said, you won't believe what happened today. And I told her and she looked and she was furious. She goes, what? She goes, I can't believe it. I'm like, I know, right? She goes, how dare you curse our finances like that? And I'm like, <laughs> women aren't supposed to say that. And she looks at me and she goes, you, she goes, you start writing those checks today. She goes, how dare you? She goes, that's money that I'm contributing to. You have no right to make that decision without me. Just rips into me. And I was like, I'll show them all. I'll start doing it and they will see the calamity and the pit that we sort of put ourselves in. Let me push pause on that story and I'll pick the rest of that up later. Here's, here's the deal, guys. We stop and we think this is such a small, insignificant part of our walk with God. But it's actually a huge part. It's, it's so important. It's so significant. It doesn't matter how much money you make. All of us have financial fears. All of us are, are in places where there's things that we feel like we need more. And the reality is the more you make, the more you feel like you need more. I gave a call in Philadelphia for people that were struggling financially. And I said, there's some of you that are in absolute drastic financial. One of the top five wealthiest men in all of Philadelphia. I said, if you are in that place, I said, I want you to come up over here. He was the first in line, came to the front before anybody else did. And I looked at him and I was kind of like disgusted. You know, I'm like, how dare you? This is for people who are poor. This is for, and he looked, I leaned in and I said, did you understand the call? And he looks at me and he says, Robbie, he goes, I'm at the place right now where I could lose it all and be so upside down and be so, in. he says, you know, you're always taking risks in this. He goes, people think everybody who has money has no financial worries. He goes, I am on the verge of losing everything. I could lose everything. Either it could go well or it could be in disaster. He goes, I'm sleepless. He starts unpacking this story and I'm going, wow, 
You know, there's always that place. We always have that place. And we all think, you know, well, all we need to, to resolve that is if I had more money, that would resolve things. But the more you make, the more you worry. The more that's there, there's more stress, there's more demands. Philippians 4.19 says, and this is really God's guarantee for our finances. He says, God will meet your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to pay attention to that part of in Christ Jesus. That God says he'll meet your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And that's an important part. And in there is something speaking, I believe, of what I want to run as a theme of understanding legacy. Of understanding something about legacy. Your heavenly father loves you, but he's not going to give you everything that you want. He's not going to give you. He says that he will meet our needs according to his riches. It's not based on my assets. It's not based on my investments. Thank God. It's not based on, you know, any of that stuff. Otherwise, it would just there would be a running out of resources quickly. But it's based on God's. And, you know. How come that we know believers, when we think about this, that are in financial struggles? How come we know people that are, that are you know, battling financial, you know, what's, what, is God not keeping his promises? Does it not work? Did God fail? Did he lie? Did he exaggerate? And the answer is no. With every promise, there is always this premise. There's always this, if you will, ridic- there's, there's always conditions that are requirements in order for the promises to come. God says, I will do my part if you do your part. God says, uh, he will meet our needs if. And I want to take a look at what some of those ifs are based on that scripture. He, basically, he's saying, if we seek his help. If we seek the Lord's help. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. We don't have because we don't ask. And last time that you needed a car, did you ask God? Did you ask God? Did you ask God how? Not God, would you get me that car? That's not the asking I'm talking about. But Lord, is this what I should do? Is this a car I should get? Is this a place I should get it? How should I do that? Where should I get it? Even just stopping. Now, this doesn't mean you need chewing gum and you're like, Lord, should I buy chewing gum? That's not that. Don't get, don't get ridiculous with it. But from the standpoint of something that's unusual or something that's going to be, you know, an unusual thing, Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Over 20 times in the New Testament, God says, ask. God is telling us, I want you to ask. One of the reasons that many never see the miracles in their lives is because of never uh, bringing a petition, never bringing a request. And if, if, we, if we take a look and we, and we really want to live this out, we need to make a rule for ourselves. Before we pay, we pray. Before we pay, we stop and say, Lord, what do you want us to do? Is this something that you're wanting for us to do? And many times we depend more on our credit cards and our abilities to get loan or our credit itself rather than we do on Jesus. And what is he saying to do? Why does God want us to ask? Because he's he's a loving father. I hate it when my kids make really silly purchases for stuff they get snookered into and then later they regret it, and the stuff that they really wanted, they've you know blown on goofy stuff. Anybody identify with that? You know, when you're looking, and you know, and, and, and listen, it only gets worse as you get older, and they get older, and their and their decisions. You're like, oh, don't, oh, oh ah, ah. it's like watching a plane sort of crash into the side of the mountain. You know, as they get older with their decisions, and you're like, oh, don't do that, don't, you know, and then. They, they end up making these bad decisions and then they, what do they do? They call mom and dad to sort of bail us out, to bail them out, to get them out of trouble. And so many times, even we as parents, you know, I have to stop and, and remind my wife, we've got to pull back and say, what's God speaking to them? What's God teaching them? I don't want to come in and rescue them and then start looking to me as being their source rather than the father. And sometimes the only way they're going to start making good decisions is to back away and not get involved in their decisions. Let them decide, but then also let them experience the consequence. That's not being a bad parent. That's being a good parent. And we're always saying, God, why don't you get me out of this? Why don't you get me out of this when God didn't get us in it? You know, and we need to stop and really weigh those decisions and bring it before him. He says in John 16, 24, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be at the fullest possible joy. 
God wants us to have the fullest possible joy. The second thing is, is if we learn to be content. Contentment is such an important thing. Why? Because God's far more interested in my character than he is in my comfort. Now, I'm all about my comfort. I mean, I like being comfortable. And most of my prayers end up getting consumed with my own comfort. And I have to die to that many times. And so anybody, anybody, you, you know, comfort is the, you women, it's only women raising their hand. You women, you do not pursue comfort. I see those shoes you walk in called torture devices. Those are, those do not look comfortable to me at all. I mean, it's all about comfort. You know, for me, it's all about uh, what's, what's going to be comfortable. But in that place, you know, we have to, we have to learn to be content. Contentment is something that's learned. It's something that we grow in. First Timothy six says, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If you've ever seen a baby being born, you know, they come into the, they don't come into the world with anything. They don't come in. There's their, their hands are empty. You know, or what's in their hands, nobody wants anyway. Uh, but it's just, you know, but at, at the funeral, you know, they go, they're going out with nothing too. And so everything in between is, is, is not much, you know, to, there's nothing really to hold on to other than what we gain really in the spiritual realm and in the relational realm. That's really this stuff that's sort of in, in our hearts and our emotions that continues on. But contentment means that my joy isn't dependent upon my circumstances. Circumstances cannot dictate where my place of contentment is. You know, I, I'm not going to be content in ambition. I'm not going to be content, you know, with having higher goals of, of certain things all the time or financial goals. Contentment means my joy is not dependent on my circumstances. It's not content. It's not dependent on what I have in the bank. Somebody asked Howard Hughes one time, "How much does it take to make a man happy?" And he said, "Just a little more, just a little more." Now, many of us would look at Howard Hughes as being the guy who had so much, especially you know when I was a kid, you know that he was that guy. But happiness, my happiness, shouldn't be dependent on stuff or getting more, you know, in the natural. My happiness should be dependent upon the Lord and not on circumstances that are going on in my life. Circumstances can change so quick. Circumstances can be just so fickle. Paul learned contentment. It says in Philippians four twelve. He says, "I know how to live in all, with almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of contentment in every situation." And you know what I believe the secret of contentment is? I believe the secret of contentment is that it's choice. Contentment is a choice. We make a choice to be content. You learn contentment by stopping and, you know, doing what causes disc- discontentment. You know, by what is causing you to be discontent. And the number one thing that I believe that causes, dis- that causes us to be discontent is comparisons. We have a tendency to compare you know, and, and yeah, you know, some people are like, yeah, stop what's bringing discontent. Thank you. You just gave me the, you know, the whole reason for now getting a divorce from my wife and, you know, finding somebody else. Thank you for that. Yeah, she's causing my discontentment. No, what's causing discontentment is when I compare her with other people. And I'm thinking that's better than what I've got. And the reality is most of the times that I don't like stuff that I've got. It's not because of that or them. It's because of me being connected to them. And it's an issue with myself. It's issues of struggle with myself. And I don't know why God puts, you know, has chosen, you know, money to be sort of a mark of things, of an acid test. But I think it's because we have a tendency to compare what we have with other people. This is the wealthiest nation on earth. Now, technically, Norway is. Technically, Norway is because of their oil resources and all, all of that. But, but you, this is one of the wealthiest as far as political power, as far as financial power, as far as fame and you know, control of entertainment industry. This is the wealthiest. I mean, this is, this is it. And yet so much, so much of the problem with the homes that you live in, you can think, well, you know, mine's a rental. It's not even this or it's not even, but yet that's a comparison that we make. And if you truly want to compare, I can show you homes from my pictures in my phone of traveling in 47 different countries around the world. And let me tell you something, the comparisons make you look very, very, very wealthy in your situation. It's all about perspective. 
But finances is really the acid test. Money, why? Because money represents our life. This is the reason why, man, when I see people, how uh, other ministries and things, how they handle money. I watch, I'm so concerned with how they handle money because money, you know what, when when you give money, when people give an offering to me or to my ministry, when they do that, I see that as blood. Why? Because that's hours off of your life that you have given, that you've earned. When I give my money and my tithe, it's hours off of my life. It is hours off of my life that I'm giving. And and we are giving, uh, as we're giving that, we are giving somebody's life. Somebody has given their life. And if we don't learn to be content, when it comes to that place, it, it helps us bring contentment into our life. When we give that and when we release that. Number three, if we practice giving by faith. Giving by faith is so crucial. If, Mother Teresa said this, if you give what you do not need, then it isn't really giving. If you're not giving something that you need, if you're like, oh, we've got extra, let's just give that. Then she's saying, listen, that's not really giving. Because there's no real sacrifice in it. There's no real sacrifice in that giving. How much do I give? The scripture gives us an earmark called a tithe. And what is tithing? From what I see in scripture, it's 10% of my gross income. And giving that back to God and stopping and saying, this goes back. And that's just really a starting point in our lives. That's just sort of the baseline, if you will. And, and there's, there's only one time in the entire Bible where God says, this is how you prove that I exist. Take a look at it. Look through scripture only one time where he says, this is how you prove that I exist. All through the Bible, it talks about the proof in tithing of the 10% of the income and how it, how it's, you know, what it looks like, how it works. But it's giving that back to the church and that is giving gratitude to God. Now, I believe that we got to be careful. You know, we're talking about the, the thing about the clean altar. The clean altar was where you brought your sacrifice. And you brought that offering there. People in the Bible sought out clean altars because a clean altar was a place that the presence visited often. It was a clean altar because the fire of God burned more white hot on that altar than any of the altars of fire that was set by men. It was God's fire. It was God's place. It was God. Sowing into a clean altar is the purest. I mean, it's the most guarantee. You know, giving to God from our heart, no matter what, is so important. But people look for clean altars because they wanted to know. That's a place where the presence visits often. That's a place where the presence visits often. My ministry is a parachurch ministry. And parachurch means come along beside. We come along beside the ministry. And so if, if a ministry isn't coming along beside the local church, isn't coming to build up the local church, it's not really parachurch. And so there is there needs to be always a reinforcement, not a distraction away from. So tithe doesn't go to a ministry like mine or Randy Clark's or World Relief or Save the Children. It comes to the local church. Because God makes it really clear in Malachi uh, 3, 8 through 11. The Lord says, you have robbed me day after day. And you ask, how have we robbed you? In the tithes and the offering, that's how. And now you're under a curse, the whole lot of you, because you're robbing me. This isn't God cursing them because they didn't give. This is God saying, you've removed yourself out from under the blessing. You've removed yourself. I don't want this to happen to you. That's why I'm warning you about it, God's saying. And he says to them after that, he says, bring in your whole tithe into my house. So there is ample provision in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it, that you will not be able to contain it. How many of you want financial blessing? If you didn't raise your hand, somebody check your pulse. I, I don't know why, but I mean, I don't know a human being that doesn't want financial blessing. And whatever that looks like to you, that doesn't mean you getting rich. That doesn't, you know, that could be a part of it. But it just means I want my finances blessed. I want the, those to be blessed. There's a man by the name of R.G. Letourneau. And R.G. Letourneau was an amazing guy. And R.G. And Letourneau started off, he made those giant, you know, earth-moving uh, uh, vehicle tires. He was the guy that could make tires that could hold. They, they were having trouble with them actually working because uh, they, could, they didn't know how to make the rubbers reinforced enough to be able to not pop under the pressure. And nobody could figure it out. But R.G. Letourneau, God gave R.G. Letourneau the plan. 
And he put the plan into place. And R.G. Letourneau, he started off his life. He was giving 10% of his income. And after a year, he looked at his wife and he goes, we have too much. He goes, we need to give 20%. And so his wife said, okay. And so they began to give 20%. And the next year, he was looking back at the finances. He goes, we still have too much. We need to give 30%. And so the next year, they gave 30%. Before it was over, R.G. Letourneau was giving 90% of his income. And he and his family were living off of 10%. And they were one of the top 20 wealthiest families in the nation. And he was only living off 10% of his income. Later, Rick Warren, with the sale of his book, Purpose Driven Life and Purpose Driven Church, he ended up doing the same. And he was following R.G. Letourneau's lead. R.G. Letourneau's testimony spoke to Rick Warren. And that's why he did that. God's challenge in this verse is says, listen, I dare you. I dare you. Prove that I exist. Prove that I exist. Why? Because in the natural mind, it's crazy. I can't. Like me, I can't afford. We can't afford this. It's, but in proving God's existence, do we really have faith? Is he really Lord? Is he really Lord of our finances? Test me in this. He says, I dare you. It's his challenge. It's his Pepsi challenge. For those of you from the 70s, you remember, remember that. See if I really exist. Are you strong enough to take the challenge? Are you willing to prove God in it? This is called the rule of the harvest, and, and it's so important. I remember my grandfather was a, was a farmer, and, a, and I'm, I'm going to talk about him here in just a minute. I'm going to show some pictures of this, but not yet. But he, he went to go. Um, one time, uh, uh, they, he was bringing in a guest speaker uh, into his church, and this is back. You know, they were still using wagons. They had, you know, trucks and stuff, but they were, you know, uh, smaller. And, you know, and so he sent this guy in this wagon to go pick up this preacher at the train station. He picks him up and and uh, after the message, the guy preached on tithing. The 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 the, the man, the, the farmer that was in my grandfather's church was driving him back to the train station, and he just said, "I can't afford to do this." He goes, "You don't understand. I'm in the red, and I'm, every year I'm in the red. This is in the middle of the depression." And this uh, this minister looked at the farmer and he says, I tell you what, he says, he goes, you do this. He goes, you follow through. And he had heard it from somebody else. And so he says, if you do this, he goes, I will cover your tithe. You tithe. And if any shortfall, I'll make up the difference by the end of next year. And so he was like, wow. And he goes, I promise you, I'll send the money. I'll wire the money to you and I'll make up the difference next year. So he did. And the next year. Uh, He never heard from the farmer and my my grandfather invited him back in and he came went to go pick him up again. And as they were riding back, he says, well, I never heard from you. How have your finances been? He goes, man, it's the first time I've been in the black. He says the very first time. And as they were riding along, the farmer started tearing up and wiping tears from his eyes. And the preacher looked at him and said, what's wrong? And he says, well, it just occurred to me. I trusted your guarantee, not God's. He said, my faith was in you, but my faith wasn't in God. And he said, I just realized that. There's a rule of the harvest. 2 Corinthians 9 says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. If we feel pressured to give, then don't. Don't do it from the standpoint of pressure. Now, let, having said that, let me say, I felt pressure from my wife. I felt pressure. Trust me, that woman knows just the right pressure points for me in my life. She knows how to push those little pressure points. And I felt pressure. Now, she only uses them when it comes to stuff that like God really is working with me on that I really need to be giving on. But giving should only be done from the standpoint of doing it cheerfully. I didn't start off cheerfully, but let me tell you something. You give, your heart will follow. Trust me, you'll hear in a minute. I was happy with the results. And it's not just looking at the amount, but the Lord says he looks at the attitude. He cares about, even if you have to say, I'm determined to do this cheerfully, even though I don't feel it cheerfully. It's not that it's worse if it's not cheerful. That's not the case. You'll still be saving yourself and doing it. But God says, he he goes on, it says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Man, when you look at the alls in there, it's just amazing. 
all, 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 all as a result of this. This principle of sowing and reaping is the law of the universe. It applies to every area of our lives. If I sow criticism, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to be the recipient of criticism. If I sow joy, I'm going to reap in joy. If I sow kindness, people are going to be kind to me. If you need more time, serve in children's ministry. If you're going, I just don't have enough time in the week. Serve in children's ministry. Trust me, you'll, you'll reap. You'll see that you have to have more time. Every time we think we don't have enough of anything, if we give in that particular area, you'll end up having more. You know, it's the same with if you give blood, guess what happens? Blood multiplies. It replenishes. It's, it's almost a good thing to do in many ways. I want to show you something. I want you to take a look at this cantaloupe. And this, is, uh, this has always been a, a good, to me, a good analogy. Because this demonstrates the miraculous of sowing and reaping. It demonstrates the reality. And if I give what I'm given, I mean, tithing is like cantaloupe. Just to put it in a practical term and to put it in a practical way. It doesn't look like much. People say, but it's just a cantaloupe. How much do one of these cost? Three bucks? Two fifty? If you get it on sale? You know, you you get it at a, you know, if you can, do you have Aldi here? Yeah, yeah, thank God for Aldi, right? (laughs) Yeah, Aldi's a good thing, man. But every farmer knows that, that if you have four sacks of seed... And you sow that, you're not going to just get back four sacks of seed, are you? No. Because you're going to get, it's going to multiply. There's going to be a multiplication. There's no crop that is anywhere that just, that just you know, renders one seed. And we, it just goes to start with the planting of the seed. Now we see there are some that, you know, that have that, like for instance, avocados and stuff like that. But yet they reproduce very quickly. But with cantaloupe, this is the better representation of God's kingdom and sowing into God's kingdom than a one seed fruit. And when we have that, when we have a need, any farmer knows that if you have a need, what do you do? You plant a seed. A farmer's not going to go, hey, we're hungry, so we got to eat all four bags of seed. What will they have then? Nothing. It's all gone. There's nothing more. But if they take those four sacks of seed and they, and they take it and they uh, offer it, what happens? Why? Because what's inside of a cantaloupe? A lot of seed. I mean, how many cantaloupes are within this cantaloupe? If you look at one of those seeds producing many of these, and then they produce all that seed, that's what tithing's like. That's what it looks like. That's how it works, guys. And we stop and think, but I don't have enough. It's just, it's 250 It's three bucks. That's not enough. It's not enough. It's not going to make that big a difference. They multiply a hundredfold. No farmer in his right mind is going to say, I can't afford to plant that seed. And that's also true with our money. It's true with everything in life. It seems illogical that to what requires faith. But God says, my ways are not your ways. I want to show you a picture of my grandparents. My grandfather was a pastor and a farmer. And uh, Do we have that? This is my grandparents here. These are their two oldest sons. That's my grandfather, Milo and Flora Douglas. This is my mom's parents. And through the Depression, he was a farmer. He was a pastor. And I want to show you a picture of his financial journal that he has. If we could pull that one up, too. You don't have that one? Sorry. Imagine a journal. From the 30s, from the late 30s. In that financial journal, there's this one part where it shows my grandfather getting $1.40 in, in, sale, in selling uh, some of his crops. And he gets $1.40 back. And it, let, let me tell you something. So the profit for that week was $1.40. That in today's you know, days times would be $25 for the week. That would be $25. And you see, if, if I had that picture, sorry for not having it there. But if you see that, it doesn't sound like much. But you clearly see in his journal where he gives 14 cents. Here he goes and he gives 14 cents. And my grandpa knew that God is a giver. And he knew he wanted to be like God. And he wanted to be in the character and the nature of God. God, it says in the scripture, God so loved the world that he gave. God wants us to learn to be generous. God gave his son 
And look how many children he has now. Look around this room right now. Look at, look at, don't just see people, see cantaloupe. (laughs) See all the seeds of salvation that are there waiting, that, that you have inside of you that are waiting to be planted. See all the seeds of healing that are waiting inside of you. They're to be planted in other people. See all the seeds of, of giving. Why? Because God planted a seed. And now millions upon millions of, of, of Christians, you know, all over the world, as a result, we learn if we give stingily, if we give miserly, if we don't give with a good heart, then we aren't being Christ-like in it, but giving cheerfully. Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. And the measure that which you give, it will be measured back, which God gives back to you. We, uh, we look at this and we say, Lord, you know, when are, well, all my needs are going to be met? When, am I, when is this going to happen? Am I willing to give away in order for that to happen? God says, no, when you give away, then all your needs will be met. Why? Because it requires faith. It requires that place of faith. Proverbs 3 says, honor the Lord in giving him the first part of all your income and he will fill your barns. This is a principle of tithing that we teach. You know, we t- I'm sure you teach in classes here that you teach and preach on uh, periodically. But if you receive a hundred bucks, it's giving 10 bucks back to God. We teach our children this. We tell our kids, man, if they get birthday money, if they get a $10 bill in their birthday, a dollar of that goes back to the house of God. A dollar of that goes back into that. We would have our, our, our son Judah, my oldest son, he, as a kid, he was such a giver. He would find a $10 bill. This kid could find money more than anybody I knew. I began to get suspicious of it after a while. I really did. But I remember my wife says, no, don't you remember when he was a baby? Don't you remember when he was three months old and we got that prophetic word for him that God was always going to financially provide for him and he would just stumble on money and that it was just God because God knew what he would do with it. He would, he found a $10 bill in the bathroom one time over tucked behind the trash. What it was doing there? I don't know, but he picks it up and he goes, dad, look, 10 bucks. And his brothers are like, oh, let's split it. Let's it. And he goes, no, I'm going to give it in church next week. And he gave the whole thing. This kid didn't have any money. This is a kid that heroin addicts, we were helping get off heroin, that were living with us, would steal his piggy. That poor kid never could keep his savings because people were constantly busting into his piggy bank and stealing every penny that he had. And yet he still gave. He still gave. He just got a job with Marilyn Hickey Ministries in in Colorado. I, I don't know... I know guys in their 50s that are worship pastors not making what he's making. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. God just loves that. And he, he he's convicts me in my life. We stop and think, well, if, if the first part of... Let me tell you something. Let the first check that you... I want you to deposit your check. Let the first check you write out be your tithe check before you pay your bills. And you think, but no, that's not wisdom. Yes, it is. That's godly wisdom. That's godly wisdom. Let me get back to Angie's and my story. We started tithing and I was proving my pastor wrong and proving my wife wrong. And I was going to teach them a lesson. I owed $8,000 when my wife and I got married. Now to us, that was an enormous amount of money. And I remember getting contacted by the, by the, uh, I was also at the same time, that's just $8,000 in debt. I was also being levied by the IRS because of really bad choices in my life. And, and I, there was part of it was naivety. I just didn't understand. I didn't know. But man, we were in dire shit. And all of a sudden, I get a call from our creditor. And I was just paying a little bit. I was paying like 50 bucks, 70, 75, whatever I could every month just to keep them off my back, really. And they called one day and they said, we're ready to settle this account. They said, can you pay half? Can you come up with $4,000? And I was like, <laughs> no. And they were like, could you come up with, you know, could, could you come up with three? And I was like, no, no, no. They finally came down and said, we tell you what, we're going to make you a deal. We're going to settle an $8,000 debt for $1,200. And I was like, I wish I could say, yes, I don't have $1,200. And they said, well, we're going to hold it for two weeks. Call us back. Let us know. Maybe somebody will help you. Maybe somebody. 
And that next week I get a call and a friend of mine said, hey, I've got a carpet job here. He says, Robbie, it's going to pay $1,300. He says, you can do it when you're not at the church working. Now, it meant I was going to have to work all week long, but I didn't care. You think I did it? Of course I did it. I was only sleeping three hours a night, but I did it. And I was able, God provided that. I was able to pay off $8,000 debt in one week. And I know it was because we were giving. I know God made that happen. Who would reduce a debt that much? And then the IRS, I owe the IRS $7,500. And I got a call from them two weeks after that. And they said, Mr. Dawkins, they said, we're willing to put you, I was being levied. They said, we're willing to put you back on payments. And I said, but the mark is you have to owe under $5,000. I said, I don't. I owe $7,500. I know I just got a new statement. And the lady says, hang on, let me check and see if that's accurate. She came back and she goes, Mr. Dawkins, we have that you owe $4,998. I can put you back on payments. And I was, I don't know what happened with that other money. I don't know. And they put me back on payments to where I was only having to pay 100 bucks a month. Guys, let me tell you something. This works. So my wife was right, as usual. And I was wrong. J.D. Rockefeller said this. John David Rockefeller. I never would have been able to make the first million dollars had I, had I not given the first tithe of my salary back to God. And at that time, I was only making $1.50 a week. But he gave 15 cents. And he says that led to me being able to make, you know, millions. Some people say I can't afford to tithe. I always remember my grandfather's ledger during the depression. And looking back at that and looking at how he tithed in the midst of the depression. Let me tell you something. My grandpa never became a rich man with money. So this doesn't always apply to money. Sometimes it applies to things that are far more valuable. And remember, we're talking about leaving a legacy. But God blessed his family and their farm and throughout the depression, they were in the middle of the dust bowl. Every farm around my grandfather's crashed, but his. Every farm. To this day, I go to Colorado and in in the midst of that particular area, there's one, they call it the Douglas Barn. And it's a barn, it's a little barn that my grandfather built. It still stands today. And what did God say? I'll make your barns overflow. It still stands. There's nothing else that exists from that town that was from back then. But that barn, the old Douglas barn. It's a landmark. It's a landmark of what? God's faithfulness. He doesn't lie. He keeps his word. The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. His grandchildren, his children, all of them, every one of my cousins. I don't know one of my cousins or second cousins or fourth cousins that don't love Jesus passionately on my grandfather's, um, and from my grandfather's family. All of them followers of Jesus. And many of us pastors and church leaders today. Many. It's a legacy. The Bible says where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And if you take a look, Jesus' number one thing in his life, you know, that he talks about really is finances. He talks about money a lot. If you take a look at the scriptures, he uses his kingdom analogy, give and it will be given to you. And you say, but I can't afford to tithe. I want to, sh- I wish I had the, 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 this other picture uh, to show you of the ledger again. But here's a picture of my grandfather with prized potatoes. This is him standing with four prized potatoes that were the largest potatoes on record in Colorado. This is in 1939. This is in the height of the depression. Everybody else's potatoes were this size. And look at the size. Guys, they're almost the size of this. Why? God keeps his word. God keeps his word. These are, this is so amazing. The fourth thing is if I trust the Lord with my whole life. Matthew 6.33 says, Your heavenly father already knows perfectly well what you need. And he will give it to you if you give him the first place in your life. And, and live as he wants you to do. 
Are we spiritual orphans? No. How much do we trust God? How much do we trust God in our finances? First Timothy 6 says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is uh, so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides for us everything for our enjoyment. God is looking out for your pleasure and for your enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy life. No matter how much we have, we, can't, we still can't lose hold of the fact that our security isn't in what we have, but in our relationship with Christ. Don't hope in wealth. Our hope is in the Lord. And if we worry and we stop, and so many times worry can be a form of atheism. Because it's not trusting that God will come through for us. It's not trusting that God will come through. But when I think about my mother, my grandfather's daughter, one day my my grandfather sat me down. And by this time he had had a stroke and, and he spoke very rarely at this time. He could speak well, but he just didn't speak very much. And he looks over, sitting beside him was that journal from during the Depression. And he looks at me and he said, hand me the journal. And I grabbed it and I said, here, Grandpa. And he opens it up to a page and he points to the page. I I thought I had it as a slide here. I apologize, I don't. But he looks at me and he points to two cents, point zero two, that he gave to missions in 1939. And he looks at me and he goes, that's you. And I'm like, I'm only two cents. I'm only worth that. You know, what's going on here? And he looks at me and he says, no, let me tell you a story. He says, many years ago, he goes, when your mother was 12 years old, and we got a picture of her when she was 12. If we can pull that up. That's my mom at 12. I don't look anything like her, do I? <laughs> Leave that there for a minute. When, I was 12, when she was 12 years old, they were having a missions conference. And they weren't, they weren't, they were, it's the last night, they had a goal set, they weren't getting enough money. And the guys standing up, they only had reached half of what their goal to give to missions. This was everybody from that particular denomination around the state had gathered in this particular town. And the man was standing up pleading, people I know, these are hard times, I know, you know, this was now at the end of the depression, this is, but, but this, these are hard times, but please, this is missions, this is impacting the world, and if you can't go, so, you know, you, you're going to go as you sow, and all this, all this stuff. And my, grand, my mother raised her hand, and she said, can I say something? And it wasn't a huge group of people, it would have been probably the equivalent of what's in this room right now. And she came to the front and they had an offering basket there. And she took the offering basket and she set it on the floor. And she said, I'm just a poor church planting farmer's daughter. And she goes, my her, her father was a church planter. And she goes, I don't have any money to give. And so she stepped into the basket. And she said, so I give myself. She said, I will go and I'll be a missionary to a place where people don't want to go be missionaries. And I'll give myself to share Jesus. And she goes, I don't have any money to give, so I give myself. And I pledge that in my life. And then the minister said, let's pass the baskets. They got in. Every every penny that they were hoping to get in, they reached their goal and 25% more. Now my mother fulfilled that promise I want you to show the picture of my mom in the car in, in, uh, in Japan this is my mother as a missionary in Japan when she would pull up to these villages children would, would come running and they would call her the Jesus lady because she would all all she would talk about was Jesus and she would come and she would share and then the next picture is her at, a, at a, a VBS and her teaching an outside like vacation Bible. So they would take that as a sort of a format. And this is the children in that village. Their parents would never come because they were, they were Shinto and it would be totally not appropriate in their culture for them to come. So the children would come. They saw the children as being the opportunity, you know, to reach them for Jesus. And show the next picture, if you would, of, of her with the hands. Or, no, do you have the one with the hands being raised? Do you have that one? We don't have that one? Okay. But 
There's another picture with all these hands of these children going up. I thought we had that there. but And it's all the children that were accepting Jesus as she gave a call for salvation. And there was probably like you know 25 in the room raising their hands to give their lives to Jesus. You see, when my grandfather looked at me and he said, you're the, that two cents. He said, Robbie, I sowed that then. And that's why you're here today. Because I planted that seed of two cents into missions. Your mother went to be a missionary, won many for the Lord in Japan, in a place where it was hard to do missions. Today, the church that my parents planted is one of the largest churches in all of Japan. And let me tell you something, that's hard to do in Japan. But somebody had the heart to plant a seed. Somebody had a heart to give. My friends, you see, when you give, you're not just sowing for yourselves. You're leaving a legacy. You're leaving a legacy. All my children love Jesus. My oldest son and his wife are talking about eventually ending up. They have that job now, but their whole plan is to go to China. I was born in the East China Sea. And to know the fruit of that, returning back. To that part of the world, man, I tell you, there's nothing that brings me more joy. Nothing. Psalms 111.5 says, he gives food to those who trust him. He never forgets his promises. Those were the seeds that my grandfather and grandmother sowed. And then the, the last picture that you just pulled up. Pull that one up again, if you will. This is me in an arena. It's hard to see, I know. With 11,000 young people in England, this one night, 1,200 young people came up to give their lives to Jesus. Why? Because a poor farmer decided he was going to leave a legacy. Not a legacy of wealth, but a legacy of the kingdom. He was going to trust God no matter what. He was trusting God, and as that little 12-year-old girl stepped in that basket that day, the legacy continued. The legacy continues in my life because they sowed those seeds. Guys, we have an incredible opportunity, and I've gone too long. But we have an incredible opportunity. And you may be stopping and saying... You know, I, I don't I don't know, you know, what I can do in, in uh, making up the past or don't worry about the past, but say starting today, starting today, I'm going to start living that legacy. I'm going to live that legacy for my children. I want to be able to point back and point to my children and say, look at what I planted there and look at what's happened in your life as a result. Twelve. Leave, keep that picture up there, if you would. Twelve thousand, twelve thousand young people. Hearing a message of how God wants to use them to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. Why? Because of two cents. And you don't think you have enough to make an impact? You do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, this is not a message of condemnation. And I rebuke the enemy for trying to put any seeds of that in anyone's heart. This is a message of invitation. To respond to you, to trust in you, to look to you, to rely on you, and to say, I'm going to prove that God exists, just like Milo Douglas proved that God exists, and that proof is still living today, and is still ministering today. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to leave a legacy. In a kingdom that is unshakable and that there is no end to. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite Amanda back up. Thanks, Robbie.